Zara, I am so excited to talk about today's sponsor. It's the new film, Challenges. It's from the director of Call Me By Your Name, Luca Guadagnino, and stars and is produced by none other than our girl Zendaya. Yeah, you know I love her. You love her too. I love her so much. Zendaya plays Tashi Duncan, a former tennis prodigy turned coach who is married to a Grand Slam champion, currently on a losing streak. And if that's not bad enough, Tashi's strategy to help her husband break his curse sort of takes a surprising and awkward turn. Hmm, awkward indeed. Because now he must face off against his former best friend and Tashi's ex-boyfriend, Patrick. Zara, the tensions are running high. I know. Tashi's someone who makes no apologies for her game on and off the court. It's her game, her rules, but with her past and present colliding, Tashi must face reality and ask herself, what will it cost to win? Challenges is the sexy drama that everyone's talking about and it's definitely not one you want to miss. It's about passion, friendship and what happens when your past comes back to challenge you. You can grab a ticket from Tuesday the 26th. So grab your friends and get excited. I will be grabbing you and we are definitely going to be going to watch it. Oh, please. Thank you so much to Challenges for making this episode of Shameless possible. I have quite a complicated relationship, I think, with my own sensitivity because I find it really irritating. I feel like it makes me more indulgent than I want to be because you personalise things. If you're very sensitive, you think that something's happened or someone's done something because of something you've done, and it rarely is. And on one hand, I think it's a horrible waste of time. It's myopic and introspective and self-centred. But on the other hand... I don't know many writers who aren't sensitive. If you want to analyse the world and absorb the different opinions and lives that people lead, then you have to necessarily be sensitive. Otherwise, how does anything penetrate? Hello and welcome to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with the impressive and thoughtful Pandora Sykes. Pandora is a British journalist, broadcaster and columnist who was a former fashion editor at the Sunday Times Style and is now a contributing editor at Elle. She has also written for titles including The Observer, The Telegraph, GQ, Vogue, Red, ES Magazine and Grazia. But of course, you likely know Pandora as the co-host of the hugely popular current affairs podcast, The High Low, a show she hosts with journalist Dolly Alderton, which boasts a million downloads a month. Pandora has just released her debut collection of essays, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right in the UK? And it's due to hit Australian bookshelves on July 21. In it, she delves into what doing it right even looks like and why so many women feel like they're always getting it wrong. We cannot wait for you to hear this chat. Here's Pandora. Pandora Sykes, welcome to Shameless In Conversation. Before I say anything, you are one of the reasons we got into podcasting. So thank you so much for giving us your time today. It is an absolute pleasure to have you on. That's amazing to hear. Oh, wow. I'm chuffed about that. (laughs) Thank you so much for having me. Pandora, we wanted to start by asking how you're going. You've got, you're launching a book in the middle of a global pandemic. How are you? How are things? How is London? I'm just chuffed that we're managing to bring it out at all. You know, like in most industries, publishing has had to 
kind of completely pivot on the way it does everything. So I wasn't even totally sure we'd be able to bring it out. So I am thrilled it's coming out. Obviously, everything looks a little bit different. You know, no book launch, no book tour, no live radio, any of that kind of thing. But I'm I'm thrilled that we've been able to even do this. It feels like an enormous privilege. A lot of people have had to push books to next year, actually. So yeah, I'm I'm excited. It's very surreal. We're so excited for you. Now, we begin every episode with the same question and we briefed you on this before we jumped on microphone. And that is, what are you reading, watching or listening to right now that you'd recommend to other women? You are the queen of books. Do you have a book for us today? So many that I'd love to recommend, but I think that this one is particularly good for during a pandemic when people need to maybe have a bit of hope and a reminder that there is goodness in the world. And this is a book by a Dutch historian called Rutger Bregman, and it's called Humankind. And it's like the big new sapiens, but it's super readable. It's kind of pop history, quite Malcolm Gladwell. And it's basically all about how human beings are inherently kind. So it really challenges the idea that we are all noble savages and that, you know, society just covers us in a sort of cloak of respectability. He says, actually, generally, humans are born kind. So it's a really uplifting read, I think, for for right now. Oh, I want to get my hands on that right now. I feel like that's exactly what people want to read. Pandora, what were you like as a kid? I, what was I like as a kid? God, I haven't been asked that. I was probably not wildly dissimilar as I am as an adult in that I loved spending lots of time on my own reading. I was really creative. I was pretty nerdy. I liked kind of rearranging my pencil cases and moving the furniture around in my bedroom. And I still love doing stuff like that, to be honest. And I was the youngest of four children and the gaps between us were quite big. So it was almost like I was an only child a lot of the time. So I had a um, a very close relationship with my mother and we did a lot kind of just us two. But then at mealtimes, I was always very aware that I was one of four children, which is why I eat very fast and tend to look quite anxious. I don't think there's like <laughs> enough, you know, enough pasta bait to go round. <laughs> Pandora, you are speaking to two people who are also one of four. I get the feeling, particularly eat quick. Eat quick or don't eat at all. <laughs> There's so much stress. I want to know, do you think the fact that you were the youngest in your family contributes to the fact that you've always been opinionated? You said in an episode of How to Fail with Elizabeth Day that you have always formed opinions on even the minutiae of life. And I wonder, did you ever feel shame about that? Did you ever want to squash your voice when you were little? Or have you always been comfortable speaking about the things that matter to you? Do you know what? I would revise what I'd said since that podcast. I think that podcast was two years ago. I don't have opinions on everything. And I actually think that having opinions on everything is dangerous. I think we need to be in more of a space now where we say, I don't know, or I'd love to know what you think. So current me is going to disagree with what 2018 me said. And no, I definitely haven't always been comfortable to express my opinion. In fact, only honestly in the last few years, definitely at home, there was an element of expressing opinion, but also it often leading to arguments. So my older siblings would always ask me not to necessarily always express my opinions. So I wouldn't, I wouldn't say I've always had the confidence or the space to do that, but also that that's not always necessary. 
I don't think that on a lot of subjects right now, my opinion is the most important thing. So now I kind of try and think, okay, well, if my opinion's not needed at this time, whose are? So trying to almost step back and make space for other people. That's a new skill to learn as well. I mean, it's not something I've never done, but it's something I'm much more aware of doing now, I think. You said before that it kind of maybe in the last few years you've really come into your own and found your voice more. What taught you to do that? Because I think, Mish and I, one of the most common questions we get from women is, how do I find my voice? How do I know what to say? What would you say to them? I think this is probably quite an annoying answer for someone who's 20, but getting older, I think probably having children was quite fundamental to me just because it kind of breaks down all of our identities and builds them from the ground up. And that's a that's a hugely uncomfortable process. But I think in the process of it, I've definitely had more clarity of mind and therefore probably clearer at expressing myself. That along with imposter syndrome, I think is just so endemic to women. I'm not fully formed in my 30s and I definitely wasn't probably even half formed in my 20s. And I really admire how many people have their shit together in their early 20s. I absolutely didn't, not in a chaotic way, in that I was never like, it's not like I was in dive bars all night, although I think that sounds like a very cool way to spend your early 20s. (laughs) More just like, I don't think that I had necessarily enough conviction. And I think I responded probably to what other people thought of me rather than what I thought of myself, which is really hard to do. Even now, I I find it very difficult to not take on other people's opinions, to not like construct myself through the lens of everyone else. You have to actively resist that every day. And then that becomes more complicated if you think that other people's opinions are important in order to shape your work. I find it interesting, this conversation about finding your voice, because one thing that has always seemed like a constant for you, Pandora, is your love of reading and, of course, your love of writing. You went to university in Leeds and you've said in interviews before that you always aspired to be a columnist. What do you love about writing so much? Always aspired to be a columnist. And I found some clippings the other day from Leeds when I was, I must have been 19 or 20, when that I'd written for the student newspaper. <laughs> and there was one that I still stand by 13 years on that, that said, is smirting our new love connection. And it was when the smoking <laughs> ban came in. And so people were having to smoke and flirt at the clubs within this very small smoking area. So I coined smirting, but it did not take off. Um, (laughs) 13 years later, get it off the ground. (laughs) Well, now, of course, you know, no one smokes and no one flirts. So, um, (laughs) but yes, always loved reading, always from when I was tiny. I remember the maximum amount of books you could get out from the library was 14 and I would get out 14 and always loved writing. I had a look at this notebook the other day because I was resurrecting this desk for my daughter. And inside, actually, what I'd done a lot of is maths but like very easy maths for the age I was so that I could give myself 10 out of 10 and write brilliant work Pandora (laughs) which is kind of depressing but that's how I like to spend time (laughs) that's amazing I think a lot of young people and particularly maybe a lot of people listening to this do aspire to be in the media but so many have no idea how to kind of get their foot in the door looking back what were the crucial moments in your career that kind of set you on the path that you're now on I always feel awful when I get emails or messages saying, how did you start out? And and I do get a lot of those actually. So maybe I might write something and put it on my website. But the truth is, and this is the most frustrating truth, is it was just a series of lucky breaks and a lot of knocking on doors and probably right time 
right place. I didn't know anyone who worked in the media. And so what I would do, I must have had quite a lot of confidence then because I wonder how many people do that now. But when I was 14, 15, 16, 17, I would email all the editors at all the magazines and ask if I could come and do work experience. And they pretty much always said no because you had to be 18 to do work experience. But what it meant was by the time I finally emailed when I was 18, some people would remember that I had emailed before. So I would say the very first stage is following people on social media now, probably, emailing, reading all of these publications that you can get your hands on, even if you don't agree with them, and starting up a blog, not because you want to be famous as a blogger, but having somewhere to practice your writing. That's where mine started when I left university, as I just had this black background with hot pink writing where I where I practiced my writing when I was a PA for a year. And then applying for every internship under the sun now, which we didn't have necessarily when I was interning, I think you have to be paid a London living wage to do an internship in London. And also there are so many more places to write for now than when I was starting out. I think that's both a blessing and a curse. Budgets at the more old school places have been slashed, which is distressing, and the budgets at the newer places aren't great. But for a writer starting out, maybe who's also a student or also got a part-time job, there are loads and loads of platforms now that are looking for young voices. So I think you have to carve out time to be pitching, 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 and to also be reading everything that's been written to check that you're not pitching something that's already been written. And then I got my first paid job editing a fashion sharing startup that doesn't exist now for the Daily Mail called Today I'm Wearing, which kind of preempted Instagram. You would heart and rate people's outfits. And then I wow. wrote editorial alongside it. I mean, it was, a, it was a hugely valuable experience for me because it was my first paid job and I had, and it came about because, and this is why it is great, I think, to constantly email if you don't get any reply. The associate editor at the Daily Mail was looking for someone young. Crucially, they had very little budget, which is why it needs to be someone young with not much experience, but tons of enthusiasm. <laughs> and he said to the editor of the Mail on Sunday, the then editor of the Mail on Sunday's You magazine, do you know anyone? And she said, well, I always get emails from this chick, maybe have her in for an interview. And so I was editing that website and I had two writers underneath me. So it was like, you know, I was launched straight into kind of management skills. I was also in all the meetings with the software developers and the kind of senior editors about the direction and the color of the website. It was turquoise and purple. And I remember saying to a a bunch of men, this looks like the packaging for like always. And I was like, (laughs) sanitary products this looks like sanitary product which is probably no surprise because there are only two colors for a woman of course and they are purple and turquoise and it was also great because I was you know editing editorial and I was starting to learn what it's like to have a kind of user generated network or to directly interact with the people that are contributing to your website which is now very de rigueur but back then there was a real distance between the editor and the reader so I think from my very first job I've known that that connection should be closer than old school media used to think it was. But it didn't last the website. They were, you know, pouring money into it and it couldn't get off the ground. So I was there for about a year. But it was very interesting because to lots of people, this was a slightly mad idea. But of course, it was founded when Instagram started. And then obviously, that's the entire premise of Instagram, except you couldn't, you couldn't do anything negative on today I'm wearing, which is nice. You couldn't couldn't do like a down. 
You could only do an up. That's my favorite part. I want that kind of social media platform to rise up next, please. Pandora, I want to know, I know this is a really big question. It's a tricky one to tackle, but a huge conversation in Australia right now is about how emaciated the journalism industry is, particularly in the wake of COVID-19. There are just so many publications shutting and the future of digital media in particular is pretty grey and pretty confusing and confuddling for a lot of young journos coming up. I'm curious, in the UK, how do you feel about the future of digital media? It is. It's absolutely, it's a great word choice, emaciated. I mean, it's something even I worry about. I don't think I would get enough work to be a full-time print and digital journalist. The reason why I went into broadcasting or speaking work or radio work is because there is, as you say, there's, there's a lot of great writers and there's very small budgets. There's too many writers for places right now. And I don't know what we do with that. I, I don't want to discourage someone from writing. I have a um, mentee. And so a lot of the time we spend is working on her pitches, but also trying to look for platforms that are coming up and that might have money. And I would say that the one great thing about now that we didn't have, and I think this will really come through with COVID-19, where brands realize they have more of a responsibility in their dialogue, is branded content. And that makes a lot of people wince. But it also can be a really freeing way to write what you want to write and get paid for it if you can't on other platforms. For example, We Present, which is We Transfer's new platform. They are doing some really great commissioning and they have great budgets. So I think it's kind of looking a little bit more to the left and to the right, not just kind of straight ahead. I'm a big believer in offsetting your creative and your corporate or your branded work. I think it's honestly a luxury to think that you can do only work that is creatively beautiful and well remunerated 100% of the time. You've got to offset that with something else now more than ever. So whether or not that's also working in a shop or it's also being a copywriter for a website, that is absolutely something that I still think now. You know, I think, okay, What's my fun, um, not very well paid stuff looking like? Where do I need to make up the money with something more corporate, something more unseen, maybe something more branded? This probably won't be the best work of my life. Definitely, I don't do something that I'm ashamed of or I wouldn't want coming out. But, you know, this idea that everything you do is going to be creatively satisfying and something you're proud to share is is just wrong and, and dangerous. I do think you're right, though. I think sometimes we do fall into the trap of thinking that, we have the right to, you know, have this overly romantic experience of journalism and it doesn't always have to be like that. I wanted to ask you about the Hilo, of course. I think so many of our listeners will know you from the Hilo. How did that podcast change your career? What I would say it did is that quite a lot of my big decisions have been subconscious. I am always looking for new platforms when I feel like I need a new challenge. So when I was a print journalist and I was writing for Sunday Times, I liked having a blog so that I was able to express myself on a different platform in perhaps a different way to how we needed to for our readers. And then when I was looking to finish that job, I wanted to think about a way in which I could have a new connection basically, with people. And so Dolly and I started it as the Pan Dolly podcast when I was at the Sunday Times. And we did that for like five months. And it was such a good kind of run up, I suppose, to the Hilo. And then when I left the Sunday Times, we launched the Hilo as our as our own one. 
And what the high-low did, which I think is incredible for me, as, as well as giving me a, a big work platform, is that I had been really looking to move away from fashion journalism. And the fact that there's no fashion on the high-low, I think probably really helped center me more in like a culture, current affairs space in a way that if I hadn't had it, it might have been harder for me to do because I might have not been able to afford to be able to do it. I might not have been given the space to be able to do it. Of course, you know, when you're carving out your own space, you can kind of do whatever you want with it. But I think the truth is, and people never really like to hear this, but Dolly and I are both pretty in agreement on this, is that the only reason it worked is because we have no expectations for it. Coming up after the break, Pandora tells us about her friendship with co-host Dolly Alderton and the roles they play in each other's professional and private lives. But first, a word from today's sponsor. What is it like to then experience that meteoric growth? I know it might have not happened overnight, but you guys have been huge in Australia and I'm sure massive in the UK for a number of years now. Did you kind of greet that success and those huge downloads with a sense of fear at any point? Did that intimidate you becoming so massive across so many different countries? We're definitely more anxious now than we were then. We tend not to share very much personal information on the podcast now. So yeah, I would say we're more cautious. The downloads feel quite abstract. I still feel like the same slightly foolish, nerdy, mostly confused girl so you know it doesn't it doesn't change anything internally or within the four walls of my house but I think just because it wasn't a business at the start and we didn't know we'd turn it into a business we have always approached it the same way which is we've always wanted to bring as much as possible to it even in our most you know we've only ever except for seasonal breaks and very brief maternity leaves we've only ever taken one week off and that was when something very sad happened in my life but we've always been really determined to bring everything we can to it and that means the format's changed a few times and I think that's sometimes thrown people but I think you know it's three and a half years old it has to evolve it has to evolve like Dolly and I evolve as humans. Pandora, I want to know, I think mainstream radio as such a traditional form of media was so dominated by men for so long. And what I have personally loved seeing as a podcaster, but also as a voracious consumer of podcasts, is so many women stamping their foot down and saying, we are going to claim our own microphone and we are going to talk about the shit that women care about. How does that feel for you? Are you excited to not only be a woman who is pioneering in this space but to see so many other women succeeding in it too it is really great to see because when we started out that was not the case I mean we started the podcast because we could not see a culture show that was helmed by two women and now most of the podcasts I listen to are by women control alt delete with Emma Gannon how to fail with Elizabeth Day you know a Tegra Wagba's podcast for NPR Terry Gross on Fresh Air. So although obviously she's a she's a kind of veteran journalist. But yeah, I mean, I'm very much of the opinion, the more the merrier. So I don't, you know, I when I see there's another brilliant podcast coming through by women, I don't think, oh my God, there's less space for us. I just think that it's it's a necessary counter to what 
the media has looked like for a really long time. And it is interesting as well because women have had to carve out creative spaces for themselves for years because they haven't been given that opportunity. So they've gone away and they've made that opportunity. And I think you see women taking to podcasting quite fluently because of that, because we're used to going away and creating our own opportunities when we don't feel like we're going to find them within a slightly more traditional format. So yeah, it's it's thrilling to see. You did say in an episode of How to Fail, and I know this was from two years ago, but you did touch on this before as well, about how you desperately do want people to like you. And I think it's definitely something that Mish and I relate to completely. How have you been navigating that with the kind of crazy explosive growth that you've experienced to know that you naturally will not be liked by every single person that stumbles on your work? This is true. And I am now very aware that there are many people that don't like me and I can't do anything about that. So there's a certain inevitability there, isn't there? It's still a practice, to be honest. I think all the time about how I can exist in a job to the best of my ability and also feel content in that job because it's not just me that I have to think about. Now I have to think about my children and what kind of mother I am to them. And I think it's something you have to check in daily. I think it's building resilience every single day, spending less time on social media and trying to shut down conversations in your head or with other people where you, I don't know, talk about a mean comment you got. Uh, it's not always it's not always easy to deal with. I have, after the birth of both of my children, I found it extremely difficult to be making content. Mentally, I was not in that space and I would have had longer off with both of them if I, if I was rewriting that time. But I think the difficulty is, as some people would say, okay, well, if you don't want to see criticism, don't look at anything. But if you don't look at anything, then how are you meant to learn? And I do believe in learning and I do believe in constructive feedback. And I do regularly enter into email dialogue with people who have criticized or said that they are disappointed with something I've done. So it's it's just trying to find that magical sweet spot, isn't it? Of my ears are open, but not my, too open or my heart is closed maybe it's that it's one's got to yeah. be, be closed I love that this is a tricky one I'm curious on your thoughts on it as two women who are in podcasting in Australia do you think people are more critical of female podcasters than they are of men I think so I think so just because I think we have many more ways to criticize women than we do men I I don't really read reviews of podcasts that much so I'm not coming from a place of huge authority but I don't feel like there's tons of commentary around someone's voice or obviously the way men look or the way they talk about spending their time. Whereas I think with women, there is an analysis of absolutely everything from mm. her parenting to the way she looks, from her voice to the way that she even interacts. Like I just think there's much more scrutiny not in, not necessarily in podcasting, just of women culturally. So yes, yeah, put that in podcasting, then probably. I I did really like a tweet that you actually put out last year. It stuck with me ever since because I think until you experience what it's like to be in a public job like this and experience that tone of feedback, you probably won't fully grasp the experience. And you wrote on Twitter, I'm slowly getting used to the endless stream of criticism as a podcaster. And you detailed one piece of particularly cruel feedback about your pregnancy and your diet at that time. And you finished with, I don't know where and when I was meant to get this rhino hide thick skin in order to do this job. Do you now just believe that 
it is a process of accepting that not everyone will like you and that's working internally on yourself or like do you and Dolly have conversations about this because Zara and I have conversations about this frequently and we've kind of arrived at the idea that inevitably it's up to us to figure out how to process with it and it's just going to happen and we just need to deal with it. I agree I think it is up to us I also do think and I would love to see a change in the way that we communicate online it's something I've written about in the book but I think that discourse it's in an absolute shambles right now in terms of how binary it is in terms of how destructive it is what I would love is for there to be a difference between constructive and destructive criticism so someone commenting on my body as you use the example or drawing conclusions about my eating is destructive I think you know especially given that I have a very healthy body and a very healthy relationship with food so that really isn't something that I'm hiding or not willing to talk about there just isn't anything there to talk about constructive criticism is you know oh your audio is not very good or I didn't feel like you probed your guest well enough or even you're not talking about enough books by diverse voices or why aren't you talking about this great new platform like that's okay that is okay to tell me that I do struggle and yes, I I probably have talked about with Dolly when it's really, really personal. But then I think as you say it being up to you, then you also have to think about what you're putting in the public eye. So I share and talk a lot less personally now. And mothering, aside from in the book, is just not something that I talk about or work within the... Like I'm not like a professional mother, if that makes sense. I don't make money out of my mothering there is nothing wrong with that but if you do that you have to be able to take the criticism that then will feel extremely personal and I'm not in a space where I want that anymore so I have to make those changes. Let's talk about this book of yours this very very highly anticipated book. I want to ask you what compels you to write an entire book of essays on what it means to live a life right, quote unquote, when it feels like for so many of us we're doing it wrong. I feel like you must be pretty overwhelmed by the world or by the sense that you are always doing it wrong to want to explore what it means to do it right. I wasn't necessarily always feeling like I was doing it wrong so much as I was feeling confused a lot and also witnessing confusion from lots of women a lot of the time. The whole idea of life being something you can get right or wrong actually came, which I think is probably quite common with a book. It was when I lay down what I wanted to write about and I pruned and I pruned and I pruned and it went through the eyes of a couple of other people. That's when we teased out the common themes, which is the paradox of choice, that choice can be a curse as much as a blessing and that in a sea of endless choice, it becomes harder to make the right decision. And also this idea that we are moving towards a very cruel ambition which is that life should be seamless and friction-free and polished and self-optimized and something that we can share at all times. So I think it was more that I was finding these things I was interested in and then realizing they did all kind of subscribe to quite a similar conversation I saw happening. What essay are you most proud of? I have my favorite. I loved your essay on workism and kind of wearing a badge of busyness as a badge of honor. Was there an essay that you wrote where you're like, that is it? That's exactly what I wanted to say and how I wanted to say it. I love hearing which essays other people like because I obviously had my favorites and my weaklings 
And um, I am always pleased when someone's favourite is not one of my favourites. Yeah. <laughs> it balances it out. I've had, I would say I've probably had the most response to, obviously it's only really gone to journalists or my friends and publishers maybe. I'm not sure how many books are out, but, I, you know, it's not hugely out there yet. But what I have had back in terms of feedback is the raw nerve because at the moment everything is very febrile and very flammable. So quite a few people have said that they see a sort of utility in that and also the looking forward to hearing back ones had quite a lot mm. of traction just because we can only socialize and communicate online at the moment so there's like extra pressure to be in this kind of digital conversation ad infinitum I would say the one I'm most proud of though is get the look it took me the most time and in all honesty most of these subjects are things that have been written on before I'm not claiming to come to things that no one's ever written about like I hope I bring a fresh eye but they're not subjects that no one's written about but I hadn't read something like get the look that tied together the psychology of fashion with the physical history the tangible history of the last 25 years of shopping so I'm probably most proud of that because that took the most work I think and it was I think the first one I wrote it was the first one I wrote and it was the last one I edited it went through the most I think <laughs> I wanted to ask you about sensitivity. You just touched on one of your essays, The Raw Nerve, and you wrote this line that kind of made me giggle out loud, and I don't know if that was if your intention, but you wrote, I once felt the ache at Cancun Airport after my husband said it was his least favourite airport and I felt sorry for the airport as if it had ears. I'm a pretty sensitive person and so is Mish, and I wanted to ask you about why women are often told that's a very complicated thing like and a character flaw. What's your relationship with your own sensitivity? That was absolutely intended to be funny. It would be even more worrying if it was not. Um, yeah, I have quite a complicated relationship, I think, with my own sensitivity because I find it really irritating. I feel like it makes me more indulgent than I want to be because you personalise things. If you're very sensitive, you think that something's happened or someone's done something because of something you've done, and it rarely is. I mean, I was so cripplingly sensitive as a child. My mum would say I'd come home from school age five and say, oh, that teacher doesn't like me. I think this one likes me, but that one doesn't like me. How can I make her like me? On one hand, I think it's a horrible waste of time. It's myopic and introspective and self-centered. But on the other hand, I don't know many writers who aren't sensitive. I think if you want to analyze the world and absorb the different opinions and lives that people lead which I do you know these aren't personal essays these are bringing together I hope lots of different voices and lots of different experiences then you have to necessarily be sensitive otherwise how does anything penetrate blessing and a curse there you go so <laughs> I'm just sitting on the fence now forever it's my new it's my new mo is to sit on the fence with everything Pandora, one of the aspects that I really appreciated about your book was your willingness to kind of examine your own whiteness and white privilege. And I think you did that really well in your essay about millennial burnout, about workism, where you actually pointed to a piece called This Is What Black Burnout Feels Like by Tiana Clark. Clark explained like the inherited burnout of being a black woman, of clenching and freezing up whenever a police car drove past her. I want to know, you obviously wrote this book before Black Lives Matter, but was that a really important thing for you that you wanted to point to your white privilege wherever you can, given the political climate right now? I think it would be an omission not to. And I think these conversations become necessarily more complicated and more interesting when we stop looking at them just from 
our point of view or our lived experience. So I, I love that piece by Tiana because I thought it was so interesting because burnout kind of, I would say, was kickstarted by Anne Helen Peterson's piece for BuzzFeed around burnout. But then there was this kind of counter response, which was, but you're writing about a, quite a specific person or quite a specific burnout. What, what if burnouts actually existed for a really long time? It just hasn't existed in the people that are having those conversations. And I just think that's incredibly interesting and necessary to, to look at that the, the shameful truth is that we might be thinking a lot of these things are new. And I would say that kind of goes across the book in, in a few places that we're thinking that these things are new, but maybe they're just not things that have been experienced by us personally, or maybe we just haven't talked about them. It's like what I say about wellness. Wellness is historic and ancient. And just because you slap a new label on something doesn't mean it's it's new. But yes, I think I think it's really important to examine how your lived experience colours the views that you have and how the experience of other people's is something that we need to sit back and listen to or read about. I wanted to talk to you about an endorsement on the front cover of your book, actually, from your co-host and dear friend Dolly Alderton. Dolly wrote, Pandora is my personal guru on all things relating to the zeitgeist. How lucky you are that she can now be yours too. Tell us about that friendship because Mish and I are two business partners but also friends and we know firsthand how incredibly close your relationship with her must be. I value her a lot <laughs> and not just in monetary terms. Um, <laughs> yeah, she's a really, it's, it's funny because I don't think I really realised until I started doing interviews that there was kind of interest in our friendship or even apparently a degree of scepticism, which is slightly really? depressing. Yeah, I did one interview where someone was like, you know, some people are wondering if you're as good friends as you seem. I would not know how to fake a friendship. So yes, we are really good friends. And she, I mean, she's my son's godmother. So it's not just an on-air thing. But the things that I love about Dolly are very much the things that come across on air. I could talk to her, you know, I could witter with her forever about random stuff, but also really important stuff. We're, we're very different in some ways. Like she is a lot more kind of hippie than me and woo woo is how I describe it. But we also have quite similar outlooks on fundamental things. I love getting advice from her. You know, she's one of the first people I turn to for advice and I find her very inspiring and she moves me. And I also think she's completely ridiculous a lot of the time. So <laughs> it's a great combination in the, in the friendship, I think. Pandora, our second last question sounds a lot more morbid than it is. And it's a question we like asking all the time because it tends to stump people. But we want to know, if you had to kind of pinpoint anything, what would you want your legacy to be? I mean, it sounds dreadfully grandiose to suggest I would have any kind of legacy. Um, I, oh, I'm pretty basic about this, to be honest, the simple stuff. I, I would want to be remembered as a kind friend and a loving mother and... I mean, it would be great to be remembered as a as a semi decent journalist, but yeah, I, I I just want to be remembered as someone that brought value to the lives of people who bring value to mine. And finally, Pandora, what is success to you? How do you define success in your own life? So I think that we need to do a bit of a renosing of success because it tends to exist within professional parameters, and I think it's something we should be looking at personally as well. So professionally, success to me looks like 
hard work that feels fulfilling and not confusing and that has a clear purpose and that I have conviction in. And success personally means feeling loved and safe and like I'm maintaining good relationships with the people I care for. So it would sort of be a mixture of both, which is conviction and contentment, I think. I love that so much. Pandora Sykes, thank you for making time for us today. You are incredibly busy. This book is brilliant. Thank you for writing it. We are such huge fans of yours and we are so grateful for you making the time today. Thank you so much for having me on. I really appreciate it. You've been a delight. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for listening to this In Conversation episode of Shameless with Pandora Sykes. If you want to hear more from Pandora, you can find her on Instagram at Pandora Sykes. You can also, of course, order her upcoming book, How Do We Know We're Doing It Right? We will pop the link to order that in the show notes. As we said at the top of this episode, it will also be hitting Aussie bookstores next Tuesday, July 21. And then, of course, search your favorite podcast app for the Hilo and give it a listen. Zara and I highly, highly recommend it. If you enjoyed this interview, we have some others that we think you'll love. Last year, we chatted to both Jamila Rizvi and Georgie Dent. They are both incredible Australian journalists and writers who have also written books. I will pop links to both of those episodes in our show notes. As for us, well, the best way to support Shameless is one of two things. Either subscribe to the show if you're on Apple Podcasts or click follow if you're on Spotify. The other thing to do is just to tell a mate. If you love listening every week and you think you know someone else who might enjoy the podcast as well, send them a link to this episode while they're in ISO or tell them across the work desk today we would so so appreciate you spreading the word that is all from us we will be back in your ears on Monday with a wrap in the week that was in pop culture bye guys Hello guys, Mish here. I am the co-founder of Shameless Media. Thank you so much for giving us your ears and your mind and your time. We're so grateful. If you enjoy the stuff that we produce, may I recommend our brand new podcast, Style-ish. Style-ish, if you want to say it quickly. Style-ish, if you want to take the long way through. It is our podcast for all things fashion, brand, business, and beauty. If that is in your wheelhouse. If you care about style content, you will love this show. It is, of course, more than just a show as well. It is a newsletter. It is an Instagram feed. It is a TikTok account. There is so much good stuff going out on Stylish every single day starting now. So in your favorite app, search for style-ish. Give it a listen. Give it a follow. We are an independent media company and we would be so, so grateful for all your support. That's all for me, guys. Check out Stylish and have a good one.